This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Hello, I'm Matt Kane, and welcome to Sunday Roast on Virgin Radio Pride. Now then, what has been going on this week? One thing that caught my eye was the artwork for Montero, the new album by Lil Nas X, which everybody is very excited about. He It shows him kind of suspended in midair, almost flying like a Greek or a Roman god. It's very flamboyant and very much him embracing his femme side. There's lots of pink in there. I love it. And and it's making a lot of people excited about the album finally coming out by our new hero on September the 17th. What else has been going on? We've had another hero at the Paralympic Games. That's Robin Lambert. They made history by becoming the first non-binary athlete to win a medal at the Paralympics. The Australian wheelchair racer won bronze in the women's 100-meter T34 sprint. And possibly even better than that was they made a great speech to the media afterwards. One thing that stuck in my mind was the line, disabled is sexy. Love it. On the downside, one piece of very bad news this week. I mean, there's been, we all know there's been a rise in LGBT plus hate crimes around the UK. This has been going on for a while. Lots of reporting of it. There was, um, there was the murder of a gay man in Tower Hamlets in London. So following this, the Met Police in London have issued a statement. It advises gay people to, quote, prioritise their safety at night by being aware of their surroundings, avoiding listening to music and avoiding dimly lit areas. So there was this big reaction to this statement on social media, as you would imagine. Lots of people have responded by accusing the police of blaming the victims and not the criminals. I'm not sure what I make of it, actually. I mean, the police defended themselves saying they're just trying to advise people how to, be, how to stay safe. I think the thing for me is I'm just most staggered that we are even having this discussion in 2021. That's the, that's the terrible thing for me. Anyway, in the spirit of standing up for ourselves, let's get on with our show, our penultimate show. As usual, everyone is welcome to get involved. If you want to contact us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK. Please use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. And I am on at Matt Cain Writer. Or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. Please, however you get in touch, do get stuck in. Now, who have we got on today's show? My panellists joining me are going to be, first of all, Dan Gillespie-Sells. If you don't know him, I find that hard to believe. He is a Brit school alumni and a singer-songwriter who's probably best known for being the frontman of one of my favourite bands, The Feeling. He also composed the music for hit stage show and now film. Everybody's talking about Jamie. And he's won two Stonewall Awards for Entertainer of the Year in 2007 and Entertainer of the Decade in 2015. Dan and I are going to be joined by Mishti Ali. As a journalist, she's already had bylines in Galdem, Metro, Cosmopolitan and Gay Times. She writes about sexuality, social class, literature, government policy, race, religion and LGBTQ plus rights. 
all this and she's still a student. Now you know why I said she's already had these bylines. She's studying at Cambridge University from where she has travelled to join us. We've had her on the show once before. We're delighted to welcome her back for a second time. And this is what Dan, Mishti and I are going to be discussing. Firstly, if someone close to us responds negatively when we come out, should we give them a second chance? Secondly, what does it take to be a good ally of the LGBTQ plus community? And can someone appoint themselves or does that status need to be conferred on them by queer people? Thirdly, moving forward from the pandemic, how do Pride events need to evolve in order to best serve our community? And finally, we'll be chatting all things musical theatre. With Dan here, it would be rude not to. So, are we all fans? How are musicals recovering from the pandemic? And why have they become such a staple of queer culture? All that is coming up. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. Hello to my guests, Dan Gillespie Sells and Mishti Ali. How are you guys today? Very well, thank you. Well, thank you. How are you? I'm really well. And thank you very much for joining us. I'm going to be chatting to both of you a bit later and find out what's going on in your lives in between our debates. But I'm going to get straight down to business with our first topic, which is all about negativity when we come out. So many of us queer people of a certain age, potentially me and Dan, who enjoy a good relationship with our families, lots of us have had to go on something of a journey to get here. And this is certainly true of a lot of friends of mine. And, you know, I know lots of people who've had to work with family members who initially responded negatively to bring them round and get them to even come on the journey with us. But the question is, now that levels of acceptance are much higher in British society and we enjoy greater visibility as a community, should we actually still do this? And if someone close to us responds negatively when we come out, should we still give them a second chance? So, Mishti, I know from the last time you were on that you have had a very bad experience coming out with family. Um, could you could you recap on this for us and tell us what you think of this question in terms of second chances? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, I remember I accidentally got outed um, when I had my own little secret Tumblr account when I was about 15 and I'd gone to sleep leaving the tab open like a fool. <laughs> so, I mean, my mum found it. I was like, it was like, oh my God, ew. Um, and I remember backtracking and claiming that I was being bisexual for clout, um, which somehow, I don't know if they believed it or not, but I guess it was easier for them to act like that was the answer. And I just, you know. What do you mean, what do you mean for clout? For, um... I claimed it was like, oh yeah, well, my friends are bi and it's a cool thing to do. <laughs> I mean, when you're like grasping at straws, I was doing whatever I could, you know, for safety. Um, And yeah, I mean, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to progress with them. I knew just even from side comments, like when I was playing certain types of music and stuff, um, like I had a period where I really liked like George Michael and the reactions even just to playing the music was not good. Um, So you have to know that there's, it's likely that you'll come to an end point of acceptance if you're going to work through that. I know, I know. And obviously you can't see that end point. But at the same time, you are very young with a lot of time ahead of you. Yeah. Um, And, you know, do you think 
Um, in terms of second chances, if your family came to you, or do you think further down the line, do you think that just would not happen? I mean... I don't think it would, but maybe that's just me being pessimistic because if I don't get my hopes up, then they won't be destroyed. <laughs> but at the same time, if it, anything did happen, then it would be more of a lovely lovely surprise than anything else. And I think I would rather that happen. And of course, I mean, if my family wanted to build like a relationship, then I'd be more than happy to do so, provided that was one in which I'd be safe and, you know, I wasn't forced into anything. Um, I'd be more than happy to, you know, I miss them. And that I think that's natural. Um, all right, so when I um, came out a long time ago, um, I have a great relationship with my family now, and the very important ones always did from the start, but one member of my family said, you're a freak with the same thing wrong in your head as a paedophile. And I didn't shut this person out, we worked on it, and we now have a good relationship. I'm not sure I've ever forgiven this person. But um, it's interesting what a lot of us have to go through and the journeys that we all have to commit to and the the energy and the work we have to put in. Dan, you are nodding, but you had a very different experience because you were brought up by two lesbian parents. Yes, yes. And so I didn't have a coming out as such. Um, though actually, there was a point in which, you know, they kind of wanted to know what was going on. And I really didn't want to tell them. And it wasn't because I was ashamed of being gay. It was just because it meant talking about sex with my parents. <laughs> you know, essentially, that that was what was so cringe about it. So it's a completely different experience to quite a lot of people, quite a lot of queer people, particularly in my generation, who did have to kind of face up to this idea that they were going to be rejected. And I didn't ever feel like I was going to be rejected. My mother, weirdly, though, was somehow still a bit... I can really, she puts it in a funny kind of way, but she kind of didn't think that I was going to be gay, even though I was quite, she just thought I was arty. She said that, she was <laughs> I thought you were arty. And I was like, what do you mean you thought I was arty? I was clearly gay. All the kids in school seemed to know I was gay. <laughs> so why would my mother think that I'm gay, especially when she's gay herself? But it was, I think she just thought, oh, who's going to be arty, I think. I think she kind of shocked my mother somehow. But but it, it, it... It, we we still as as queer people we still have to come out all the time anyway. Yeah, you know, we have to come out in society. We have to come out in our jobs. We have to come out every time anyone was going to write a piece about us or or, or or any you know. There's there's this kind of endless coming out that's part of our lives. And I think we just have to get used to that as well. Well, absolutely. And if we have those little micro comings out and people respond negatively, that's a completely different thing to the the big experience. Uh, you know, at but if it's family and you know that you want to have a relationship with your family, yeah. I'm, yeah so I mean, it's not something that I feel that I'm I'm terribly well um, able to to talk about. Except for I would say that you have to do whatever's right for you, and you have to do whatever makes you feel first of all safe, and and you have to do it when you're ready. And as long as whoever's doing it is doing it on their terms, and they're making it not about the other person and not about trying to fix the other person or make the other person, you know, like you know, <laughs> kind of, you know, accept them or any of that kind of stuff. But they're doing you're doing it for the sake of the, the, your want for that relationship. You know, you know, you said um, you um, so you already you've touched on a few things I want to talk about. One is the kind of um, defaults that people of our generation had that we would get a negative response. But you also said you didn't have the shame that so many of us get from growing up gay in a world that doesn't accept us. I wonder if there's anything, um, slightly steering off the topic, but I wonder if there's anything growing up with older members in your family from our community, which is such a rare thing for us. Yes. Um, I wonder if there's anything that um, other people or our community in a wider sense can learn from your experience. 
Do you know what I mean? Yes, I mean, it's weird, isn't it? Because you, you, I was listening to someone talk about this on the radio, actually, a different show, I'm afraid. Sorry, love. Um, <laughs> but I was listening to another radio station. Someone was saying that it was interesting how they, they, um, you know, like like older, older gay people uh, don't raise gay kids necessarily and gay kids aren't you know it's not like a jewish family where they would all be brought up in that culture yeah or or even politically like a you know right wing or a left wing family you can get brought up in the ideology of it there's no such thing as a kind of being brought up with the ideology of being gay unless you come from my family but that's pretty rare you know and and, and so most people most gay people don't necessarily have a kind of gay education growing up you know they're not taught how to be gay by their gay parents that's just not how it works and it never will work like that so there is a thing about having older gay role models who you can maybe get a little bit of something from or or have older gay role models around might be really useful for for, for young gay people totally I, I mean i'd love to do some kind of queer elders like m matching up mentors with mentees or something mishti do you think um obviously taking stepping a Apart from the from the attitudes within your family, do you think having older members of our community in your family would have changed things? If somebody else had gone through what you're now going through, would it have made things easier for you? I think it would have because as somebody who's already kind of fought that fight, and someone who like when it's, I think it's the um, kind of like offhand comments that people don't even think about. They just toss them out there, and yes. you know, sitting there as a queer person, that really hurts. Yeah. And having somebody there who would, you know, inevitably have pulled them up on it, mm -hmm. that would have made such a big difference. It, it really is the small things. Totally. Right. I want to bring in some comments from our listeners um, answering this question. Should we give people a second chance if they respond negatively when we come out? Sam on Facebook says it depends if they ask for a second chance. Marcus on Instagram. Absolutely. Yes. Hatred is taught as upsetting as it is to us. Hugh on Twitter says, I think it depends on who it is and their importance to you. If it's a friend or family member, you're probably going to want to work at that relationship. But if it says someone you meet at a party and they're react negatively when you say you're gay well screw them which i agree <laughs> i agree with what do you think dan i think so i think it depends like i say you've got to make that choice yourself and you've got to make sure that you're feeling like you're up for that mm. you know i don't think anyone should feel like they that like, like there's a necessarily a pressure because it's tiring it's exhausting. You might just go, you know what? I haven't got the energy. I need to look after myself first mm. and then my relationship second. And then maybe that's how, you know, what I, mean? I think it's important to, to, to recognize that sometimes these relationships just aren't going to work. And, it, in, and just because someone is of your blood, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to have to have a relationship with them. But because you could keep going back and keep getting knocked back and keep getting slightly driven yeah. down and keep having the same scars reopened. And that would be awful. So there is a point in which you have to go, actually, this isn't going to work. But there's also, I don't think after the first attempt, you should give up. I mean, your question is about if on your first coming out, it's a negative experience, you should definitely say, no, that's it, you've had one chance. Because I think that's probably shooting yourself in the foot as much as anything else. Oh, totally. Um, it's interesting what you say, though, because actually there was a point earlier on when it really struck me that we all kind of just take for granted that if we don't have relationships with family members for whatever reason, it's we've somehow failed and actually, yep. I would argue that um, if your family members are taking a certain stance to who you are as a person, then actually it's a sign of success to walk away and, and cut the ties. Do you, do you think, Mishti, are you proud of yourself for standing up and walking away? I mean, 100%. There have been loads of times where I've 
been like oh no this this hasn't gone the way that I wanted it to or you know it's small things especially at uni like if I'm like oh that essay wasn't great then I go hang on the fact that I'm here at all in a place where I'm happy surrounded by friends who I know love and care about me that is way more than I thought that I'd have and I mean for so many like queer youth out there that's not an option that they have. So, you know, go, going through something like that and being able to keep yourself together and still, you know, hold your head high, I think that anybody should be proud of that. I think there's also, there's a difference, isn't there, between hatred and lack of knowledge or experience. And maybe this was more... Um, appropriate when we were growing up dad i know you were in a completely different situation to me but um there were people around in those days who would often say i've never met a gay person or they didn't think they had yeah um you know and um if so i i'm much more forgiving of somebody's lack of knowledge or experience or i was i think that the issue is now these days um I'm not sure that argument washes anymore because even yeah. if you're... You're a bit fr- like, what's your excuse? I mean, yeah. in this day and age, you know, in this culture that we live in, you know, it, it, what, is your, what is your excuse? But, but people do come from different cultures. There are bubbles that people live in and there are different, you know, we, we, yeah. I think we need to kind of recognise that. But I think we, 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 we have this amazing ability to create our own families. Obviously, I know it's a massive cliche in the queer community, but as queer people, we found our own family and we figure that out. And we've been forced into that. Yeah. And you know what? If, if 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 we're forced to carry on doing that, it's not a bad way to live. No, it's a nice silver lining. Yeah. Um, but even in the kind of small bubbles, do you think, Mr. you know, even if somebody is from a faith-based community or a, a different culture, maybe, that um, settled here a few generations ago from, you know, elsewhere, um, is that an excuse when there's still information around? It's, it's quite easy for people to inform themselves about what it means to be queer. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of um, you know queer friends fr- who are and um, people of color and from so many different communities. And the fact that we've managed to find each other and build communities clearly shows that we're here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just whether or not people are willing to actually listen to us. And even, I mean, I think it was actually yesterday um, I saw a survey by YouGov that said that less than a third of people in Britain have actually actually know like a gay person in the flesh, which is bizarre to me considering that my friendship group is like mostly composed of queer people. <laughs> and you know what? We're often um, people often have to go at us for living in little echo chambers and bubbles. <laughs> Frankly, the reason why we've done that a lot of the time is because we've been escaping. Yes. Persecution, isn't it? And Absolutely. You know, the, the idea of kind of electing your own support group is an amazing thing in lots of ways, isn't it? Yeah, I 100% agree. I think being, even though we all do come from very different backgrounds, from very different walks of life, um, just having something small, that small commonality and being able to rely on each other. Because, I mean, you end up, you do end up having similar experiences just you know superimposed onto different backgrounds and you share that i think it's great because i think what happens because of that because the necessity of it over the years is that being queer has been a kind of new education yeah in that you know a lot of queer people a lot of working class queer people end up you know, somehow mixing with middle-class people or upper-class people that they never normally would have mixed with. But because of this one thing in common, they're kind of ostracised in the same way as people, you know, like, because the queer people are from everywhere, from every race and from every creed and from every, you know, every place in every society, every, every place within a society. And then they're kind of shoved together because they've all been ostracised from those places. And and we educate each other because of that. So, you you know, queer spaces are are, are naturally 
multicultural, multi-class, multi-everything. And that's a, that's a great melting pot that we kind of have accidentally kind of created by the nature of how, by, by, by pure necessity. And I think that, that I think I got an education that I wouldn't have got just by, by mixing with people that I wouldn't normally, normally mix with coming from a working class family, you know. I'm just going to bring in a couple more listener comments. Chris on Facebook says, yes, definitely. A lot of what can come across as prejudice or negativity can be down to a preconceived notion of who we are. A bit of education and inclusion can really work wonders. I had a few tricky people when I was coming out who eventually accepted I wasn't a different person and maybe even realised that who I was, who I really was, made me special. It went from homophobia to wearing me as a badge of honour. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, so many of us have lived through this, um, being made to feel like we're something to be ashamed of and now being held up as something that can be celebrated. I think it's, I think it's possibly problematic when the people who want to hold us up to celebrate us are the same ones yeah. who actually initially rejected us. Because it's like you said before, Mr. even the casual comments... Um, talking about making a comment about George Michael on the telly. Um, you know, they really trigger us and really cut deep. So actually the big stuff can completely shape who we are, can't it? Yeah, I mean, I personally wouldn't really want to feel like I was being made, you know, a non-queer person's badge of honour. I think that's incredibly dehumanising. Um, and I think one of the things at the moment that we've, well, I've noticed personally anyway, is that there's this weird cultural over-familiarity with queer people. Like, yes, even though most of these people have never really like, had close relationships um, with queer people in the flesh, they feel as if they have a right to speak and then if they mess up, then blame it on ignorance or, oh, but I'm learning, which is completely fine most of the time. You should allow people safe spaces to learn. That's a good thing. But you can't hide behind that all the time. I know, although interestingly, um, when you get people, often straight cis women, who say, oh, I love gays, all my mm. friends are gay, and um, we go shopping together and for spa days and cocktails. And, um, you know, I can't stand cocktails and I don't like spas. <laughs> um, and I know what you mean, they're over familiar. But for those of us from a different generation, um, that is such an improvement on what we had before. Do you know what I mean? That I kind of... Which is uh, like things being thrown at you. Yeah. <laughs> As you, know you walk mean? down the street. I don't, I don't know. I mean, yes, yes. Uh, it, 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 what's happening is they're making it about them, though. That's the annoying thing. Mm. It's not really about you as an individual. It's about kind of like you as that kind of person. And they're just making it about them. Well, and that's embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> well, can I say on that subject? So the number of um, usually gay male friends of mine over the years who've come out and their parents responded negatively because that's trying to keep it on topic. And their parents have said to them, yeah, but you've got to realise how hard it is for us. We didn't expect any of this and um, we don't really know any gay people. It's really difficult for us. And I think, just, you know, they say, give us time. I think, flipping heck, if it's difficult for you, do you never stop to think how difficult <laughs> is it for my child? And we, when we grew up, yeah. you know, you mentioned, Dan, the default outside your household yeah. of the kind of expectation that we'd get a negative response. Yeah. A lot of us were so pathetically grateful for anything that vaguely approached positivity. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it shows completely the, the changing times. You know, you're just grateful that, that you got away with it. You know, without being chased <laughs> down the street. I know. You know, you're just grateful you got away with anything back in those days. But, but also, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, but I get it because the context is different now for young people, and it's a fab, fabulous thing. And 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 also, it's more complex and it's more layered. And there's and and it, even just the idea of being queer is is a more complex thing now. And I think that's great. I think that's brilliant. That that shows that we've evolved and that shows where we're at now. And that's great. And and yeah, we get to say you're making this about you. And actually, I'm the one who's I'm the one who's sharing something about myself that is makes me vulnerable. And, you know, I, I would rather you be empathizing with my position than thinking about what it means to you. But, you know, people people expose themselves all the time by being put in these awkward situations. And it's when they're not used to being in the awkward situations that most cis white straight people are not used to being in these awkward situations right so they don't they react in this kind of like i'm the victim way sometimes mm. and you have to go you know what it's just because they're not used to it they're just not used to being challenged um it's interesting though because dan and i have co a couple of times talked about how much better things are now and obviously in a more general perspective they are but mishti's experience shows us that there are still these pockets of do you think it's easy for people to you know, when if people had a hard time growing up and then it's so much better for them now to lose sight of these pockets of negativity that still exist and sometimes bigger than little pockets. Um, I don't think so. I think it's just that people, you know, there's, like you said, shifting narratives. And I mean, this is probably me talking about something that I know slightly better. Um, but it's something I've noticed when we're having conversations about racism as well. Like, a lot, particularly when it comes to microaggressions, there are certain things that I would take issue with and I would go, that's not an okay thing to say. You're only saying that to me because of the colour of my skin. But an older um, non-white person might go, oh, well, it wasn't so bad. It was more open in my day. And I think that's more indicative of the way that attitudes towards all types of marginalised groups are today. And I do think that that's a very British feature of prejudice. Um, people do tend not to say things to your face. It will be more like a backhanded compliment or just a, you know, a sneaky eye up and down. <laughs> They'll have ways of saying it, but you can never quite place your finger on it. And that's what makes it slightly more difficult. And you said earlier, Mishti, that... Um you know, when you were talking about this awful experience you've had with your family, that if they mm. did come back to you wanting to build a relationship, you would give them a second chance. Would that be on any conditions? Or, you know, I mean, if they've said these horrible things to you and they come back, it, you know, as Dan said earlier, it can be quite triggering to be around members of the family who've been horrible to us. And, um, you know, would you, would you, just give it a go on principle or would there have to be certain fundamentals in place before that happened? Um, I think that at the end of the day, that's my mum and my dad and those are still my siblings and that's what I would think about. And maybe it's illogical that I would, you know, give them the time of day after all of the things that happened. Um, but sometimes, especially when you, when we're having these conversations and we're talking about them, you know, in this kind of studio, completely detached. I know. I think that can sometimes cloud our judgment and um, we don't do things logically when it comes to you actually being in the situation yeah. so honestly I don't know what I would do but if I was presented with the opportunity I'd, I'd be overjoyed <laughs> yeah because I talked about um going on a journey with them and um you know working on it together but there is the possibility that um family members who respond negatively go away think and decide to go on a journey on their own to educate themselves and then come back which would be a wonderful thing to think that is down the line yeah um i don't know how 
willing people would be. I mean, sometimes, especially when that's your friends and family, people do surprise you, mm. but you are likely to know that your closest loved ones best. Um, Sometimes you just know how people are in terms of personality and stuff. I'm stubborn and I know that I get that from somewhere. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so in terms of knowing members of the family, it's interesting that Dan has lesbian mums who didn't um, guess that he was gay. I have a straight mum who did. (laughs) And what I would like to know from you two is, do you think if a parent has the slightest inkling that their child might be queer do you think it's their responsibility to do some research to get to know a gay person to to find out about it um so that if that child does come out to them they can make it clear that they are loved unconditionally dan what do you think i think they should do that anyway i think that should be something they should do if they have a kid i mean i think that's that's you know that that also you know like, you don't have to have an inkling that your 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 kid might be queer in order to do that you should do that anyway, because because then you're prepared and you're prepared for life and you're prepared, you know, why not? Well, interesting. I completely agree with you. My next question was going to be, check this. Would you go as far as saying that before having children, all parents should confront <laughs> the possibility that a child may be queer and make sure they're OK with that? It's true, though, isn't it? I mean, you know... Um, I suppose you can't I suppose you can't confront every possibility before a child is born but you need to think could their life turn out to be very different to mine and how would I be with you know if we all say that being a good parent is about um unconditional love you have to be prepared you have to sit and think about that before you have a child don't yeah, you Yeah I mean they might want to join the army they might yeah. want to be a police person whatever you know, they might surprise you however the chance that they're going to be queer is actually quite high and and you know it's, and you know what I mean. So it's something to be prepared for, you know. And 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 if your attitudes around that are going to be problematic before you even start, that's not even good. That's not good even if even if you have straight kids. No, because you're going to pass on that nonsense to them as well. I just think everyone should be as enlightened as they possibly can be, and we should be interested in other people as human beings, and we should be interested in all the different ways that that that, that people do turn out. And and you know, uh, uh, I think you know, parents should try and be enlightened anyway. And I think it's it's a, it's it's I mean, regardless of whether your kid's going to be queer or not, you know, I don't think you've, you're not going to have any control over that. So you might as well, you know. Well, and they shouldn't present a narrow view of the world to children. They should present as wide a view as possible. I mean, it's easy for me to say because I'm not a parent. But it's interesting that a lot of parents consider the ultimate insult to them that you can't say is you are a bad mother or a bad father. Mm. But actually, I would argue um, if a parent isn't going to accept a child you know, as they are, in our case, we're talking specifically about LGBTQ, um, they are a bad parent. What do you think, Mishta? I think I'm too close to the situation. Okay. <laughs> I, would, I don't think I'd want to call my mum or dad bad parents. And I think if anyone else did, I'd probably want to scrap them. So. It's interesting, isn't it? It's such, a, it's such a line. How dare you? How dare you? And I'm allowed to criticise my parents, but no one else. It's such a line, though, isn't it? To it call somebody a, a bad parent. But if we're going to say God, that a... to be a good parent, you need to enlighten yourself, you need to think about these things, you know, confront... I the... just think being parents tough. Yeah. It's tough, tough, tough. So prepare yourself anyway, you know, and why would you not be prepared for that? That's it's a perfectly realistic thing to be prepared for as your kid being queer. So why would you make your life so difficult? It's going to be hard enough being a parent anyway, without grow without having 
you know, be, not be prepared for, for, for how your kid's going to turn out. I just think, you know, if, if any parents listen to this, I mean, they're probably pretty switched on as it is. It's interesting, though, isn't it? You say that being a parent is tough. None of us are parents here. I completely agree with you. But then I think what I said earlier, when parents make it all about them and say, oh, it's really hard for us to deal with this, this, that and the other... Maybe it is hard for them to deal with it because, you know, maybe um, when they were having children, to be honest, when my mum and dad had kids, it would never have occurred to them to think that one of their kids could turn out to be gay. And therefore, maybe it's totally understandable they wouldn't have confronted that idea. Yeah, but that was in the 1840s, love, wasn't it? The 1970s. The 1970s. But things, but lots of things haven't changed. And actually, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about this. We need to wrap up now, but we're talking about this. And um, it's not as simple as saying everything is so much better now. Yes, the broader picture is much better in this country. Mm You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. I am Matt Kane. You are listening to my Sunday Rose. I am delighted to be joined. One of my panellists today is the fabulously talented Dan Gillespie Sells. Now, Dan, we have to talk about The Feeling, one of my favourite bands of all time. You played Carfest South last weekend to an audience filled with the Virgin Radio family. What was it like to be back on stage after the pandemic? Oh my goodness! It was it was. <laughs> Do you know what it was? It was weird. It was very strange. I I I. You know, it was probably maybe the third or fourth show that we've had since since we've been back. Oh really? And um, it was it was. I was singing with Lulu, and uh, <laughs> Roger Daltrey and and Ricky from the Kaiser Chiefs and Beverly Knight and a bunch of mates all came and sung on stage with us. Um, uh, and it was it's great fun. Um, but I think after a while of not playing live, you you kind of go back into the same moves you did before, and it all feels really weird. Like your muscle memory's not quite there. And I started to think, am I am I am I doing what am I doing with my body? I'm doing these weird claps, and it's obviously what I've always done on stage. But you know, after having not not done anything for such a long time, it just your whole body feels out of sorts. But did you get back into it? I did eventually. It took a, took a while for me to get back into it, but I really enjoyed it. And it was it was it was yeah. It's great to be in front of a load of people again, and it's great for people to be having fun and celebrating music and celebrating life again. You know, it's it's important stuff. And you've got some new music coming out, haven't you? Um, the feeling has a new album, which was which is which is um, uh, coming out soon. So, uh, do you know the dates? Details are soon to be announced. Oh, soon exciting. to be announced. So yeah, that we, we've been working on that during lockdown. Um, yeah, we've, we had a busy lockdown. Well, and also recently, um, not just making a new album, you were very kind enough to do a fabulous episode of Quite a Queer Conversation for us on Virgin Radio Pride with your mum, Kath. We spoke about her earlier. How was this for you? I know you've done quite a few things with your mum now. Yeah, she's 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 um, she's quite the guest to have on. So she <laughs> tends to get asked first, and then I get asked. So it's a bit. It's nice for you to ask me on, and not my mum. Thanks we'll have her on next week. <laughs> She'll be headlining. No, she's not. Yeah, she gets asked to do all these things. It was quite interesting. It was a nice little chat, and it was it was. It's always fun, and also you find something out about your parents sometimes when you didn't quite know you know because often you don't have those kind of chats and suddenly you know there's a microphone in the room and then suddenly I'm like oh that's interesting and and you know kind of found out some stuff that's when I found out the thing about when I when we were talking about coming out and she was like I didn't think you were going to be gay I was like what that's when you found it that's when I found out when I was doing that thing (laughs) that's when I was doing that I you know one of the questions that came up you know was about coming out and stuff like that so it was nice I think we you know we had a nice chat and uh, it was a lot of fun 
And your mum is, as you say, it's just a star guest in her own right. She recently got an MBE for services to the LGBT and the disabled communities. You know, when you were growing up, um, she must have been an inspiration to you just in terms of her drive and her, you know, commitment to her beliefs. I mean, now I look back, I go, yes, of course. I mean, at the time, it's just your mum, isn't it? You know, yeah. so it's, it's a kind of like a, you don't go, you know, I wasn't turning up, walking down the stairs every morning from my bedroom go, wow. I was, you know, but but our house was a really interesting place. You know, it was, it was, it was a, there was a disability LGBT charity being run from our front room. And there was a, it was a safe space for lots of, lots of women who, who at the time, um, were being thrown out of their houses and losing custody of their kids and all that kind of stuff. You know, they often come to our place, and and you know, young queer men as well. I mean, it was it was one of those places that that um, became a little kind of mini community hub in North London. So having grown up inside that and part of that. Um, and again, like I say, it was a very diverse kind of place because people from all different kind of walks of life become disabled or become queer or whatever, you know, and 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 are queer, and 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 it was a place that they could meet and uh, and also, you know, we we they, they, the stuff they got up to, like dating stuff for, for disabled queer people, you know, because it was really hard for them to meet. Is before even the internet was a big thing, so we had like you know dating hotlines run from our front room and it was kind of mad it was chaotic and, and all, a lot of the kind of demos we would we, do all the banners at ours you know what I mean before we went off and did a section 28 demo or a disability demo and mum chained herself to a bus outside parliament it was like we did all the prep and then we went out and we did it it was it was a fun childhood it was an interesting part of a of a community and I felt like I was raised by a village Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. I thought I was raised by a village, but I was raised by a really queer, disabled village. You know, <laughs> like it was a, it was all just, nobody was that normal, but it was still kind of very much raised by a village. It was, that's the way it was. There were busy women. And do you think this kind of thing inspired your creativity? Not, you know, stepping aside from the kind of identity as a gay man, was there something in growing up in that environment that sparked, that inspired you? I mean, I think... I think I found I like I, I love having lots of people around and that's definitely affected my life. The way I live now is in this I've got my studio in East London, as you know, I've got this rooms all over the place and people live with me and I, I love living in a kind of communal kind of way. And I think yeah. that that's it's like how, a little village. That's how we grew up. We grew up in a village and I kind of created my own little kind of weird kind of community of, of artists and, and people that I like living with. And so there's that. But but I think when it comes to the art and stuff like that, I think um, it's interesting to have um, had lots of experiences in your life as a, as a writer, full stop, yeah. isn't it? And, and I yeah. think that, that obviously does feed into my, into my writing, but not in a conscious way. Completely agree, completely agree. Talking about art, tell us about the film of your stage musical, your hit stage musical. Everybody's talking about Jamie. I'm seeing it next week, I think. Yes. The week after, I can't remember. Really excited. What can I expect? Is it going to be as brilliant as I think it's going to be? Well, I mean, it depends if you've seen the show. If you've seen the show in the West End... Um... I've seen it about three times, darling. Oh, fabulous. Okay, well, <laughs> in which case, I would say it has the spirit of our show... Um, it has the story, it has all of that stuff, but it has what film can offer um, on top of that. 
if you know what I mean, like that whole thing about the cinematic experience, it, it kind of brings that all out as well. But we wanted to keep the spirit the same and we were able to do that because it's the same creative team as worked on the show. So the three of us that created the show, Tom, I and Jonathan, also created the musical the, the the movie and and so that that's that's what how we managed to keep the the spirit of it alive but you've got a different cast some fantastic names in it we do we do we have sarah lancashire and 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 uh, richard e grant um uh as the kind of like known and sharon horgan sharon horgan i can't wait names in it and then obviously max harwood and lauren you know the the, the younger cast uh new stars just kind of straight out of college and 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 doing brilliantly already so it was it was nice to bring some some new talent into it as well and obviously the film well i'm saying obviously we know that the film was delayed for a long time because of covid you know from your when you're so passionately invested in you know something that has come from your head your soul how difficult was that for you to live through i kept working Actually, I kept working on it. I mean, the, the interesting thing was that there was always something to do, you know, while I was still working on the soundtrack and it was the delay. I was like, brilliant, I've got more time to do this, I've got more time to do that. And, and what we did was we started adding people to the soundtrack album. So we've got Becky Hill on the soundtrack album with us. And I, I called up M&EK and said, look, I need to track and I need, I've written this thing and can you help me so we can make this new opening for the film, which was great. And then at the end of the film, I wanted something classic. So I got Shaka Khan to record a track. Um, and then in the middle, we've got Holly Johnson doing stuff in the film. We've got Beverly Knight we've got Sophia Liz Bexter we've got you know family you know essentially all coming and being part of this movie and this soundtrack and it and it it, it lends something to it the ability so, so I, the, the lockdown for me was was a great opportunity to to to, to make it even better oh, fantastic and um it's out finally on September the 17th yes. can you tell our listeners how they can watch it because obviously all viewing of films has completely changed yes so it's on Amazon Prime and it's 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 a free to watch on Prime video so it's out just you know so people can just watch it in their homes but also there is a release in in, in many cinemas as well so we have a, a releases in the in some of the Curzons and, and many of the, the the cinemas are playing it as well um um, albeit limited but uh, uh, you know the great thing about it being on Prime um, is that it's 250 territories or something around the world mm. and, and for our little British working class queer story I think it's a brilliant thing that it gets to get reach so many people across the planet and I'm hoping that, that people find it and, and enjoy it Fantastic September the 17th I will look forward to it and the new music from The Feeling the Sunday Roast with Matt Kane, Virgin Radio Pride. Now we're going to be talking about allies, allies of the LGBTQ plus community. Not a day goes by without some celebrity self-identifying as one. It's become almost standard, particularly in the entertainment industry these days. We've almost come to expect it. But what does it take to be a good ally to the LGBTQ plus community? And what do we need from our allies? And also, can someone appoint themselves an ally? Or does that status need to be conferred on them? by people from within our community. I am chuffed to bits to be joined by Ruth Coker-Burks now. She is also known as the Cemetery Angel. She's easily one of history's greatest allies to our community. In the conservative 80s in Arkansas, USA, she took it upon herself to care for AIDS patients whose friends and families had abandoned them and who hospital staff didn't want to go near. She's now written a beautiful and brilliant 
brilliant book, All the Young Men, about her experiences. Ruth, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. That's a beautiful introduction. Thank you very much. And could I start by asking you, where do you think your sense of allyship originally came from? Why, why did you feel such an affinity with the gay community? Because they were human beings, just like I am. And, um, you know, to watch another human being being humiliated or tortured or anything like that, I just can't take it. I just can't take it. And so that's where it comes from. And you you um, talk about how you put this allyship into action in your book, All the Young Men. Um you talk about all your experiences working with AIDS patients at this horrific time. This must have had a huge impact on your life and shaped who you are as a person. Well, I, you know, I did what everybody else should have done but didn't do. And I've never understood, I've never understood people not pitching in and doing what they can do to help someone else. Um, although, as you say, um, allyship was very rare in those days. Other people just weren't helping us in the way no. that we needed help at the time. No, there was, there were no, there was no one that I could find. And trust me, I had the word out everywhere. I was begging for help, begging for help. I had people that were just dying left and right, and I could not get one person to help me and as well as not being able to get them to help you did anyone warn you against mixing with those becoming too involved with our community oh yes absolutely i was um i ended up being the face of the gay community to the straight people and i didn't know that there i didn't know there was a them or us kind of attitude you know and uh i just it always been us you know to me growing up and uh i don't it was just a strange time and now you know people run to help but back then they ran away absolutely and ruth i'm going to bring in my panel in a minute because we're talking about allies but i'd love to know would you actually use the term ally to describe yourself is it a means of nailing your colors to the mast and declaring your solidarity with the lgbtq plus movement or how do you feel about the term well i you know i just think that you should jump in and do whatever you can do i mean for anybody and uh the lgbt um crowd Y'all are just the best. I mean, why wouldn't you want gay friends? I'm seriously. And um, they're just, y'all are such lovely, wonderful people. And people just don't know what they're missing out on. They just don't know. And, Um, you know, for the, I just wanted to get this in, for the religious crowd, I have seen that the LGBT plus Q plus community is closer to God than any of the people sitting on the church pews on Sunday. 
I love that. Thank you for that very generous description, although I'm not sure I'm particularly holy and angelic most of the time. <laughs> but um, stay on the line. I want to, so I want to bring in my okay. panel now. So, Mishti, Mishti, um, allies like Ruth have made a huge impact on the lives of queer people, but every time someone calls out homophobic abuse or even name-calling just in everyday life and says that's not okay, this can make a difference, can't it? Um, yeah, I, I agree 100%. And I just want to say, I mean, Ruth, what you've done is absolutely incredible. Um, but I agree with what you, what you were saying about how, you know, you should do those things for anybody who's, you know, in a sticky situation or facing any form of oppression. And, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that it's only the queer community that actually uses the word ally, you know, as to actually identify somebody who's working with the cause and labelling yourself as such. I understand that the intent is to mark yourself out as a safe person, but people will know whether or not you're a safe person within your actions rather than a label that you've pinned to yourself. And I mean... So you don't find the label particularly helpful? No, and I think, and you know, how do we even decide that? You know, the, the community's not a monolith. It's not like everybody sat around at like some round table and going, okay, yeah, this person's safe. We'll give them our stamp of approval. That that does, does not just doesn't work. And I think that some of the people who I've seen being, you know, crowned as allies is rather suspicious. Um, I know only last week, I mean, Hillary Clinton was named like a global ally of the year um, by the British LGBTQ Awards, which, I mean, personally, I take issue with. Well, interesting that you bring up politically because, so on one hand, I'm talking about kind of calling out homophobia just in day-to-day life. But also, Dan, if you think about the advancement of equality legislation, our legal rights. We couldn't have got where we are without allies. You know, for a long time, there were no out gay politicians. And, you know, still, they're not in anything like a majority. And we are um, a minority community. We always will be. So we can't pass any kind of legislation without allies, can we? They're crucial to us. Yes, I think there's a certain amount of... I mean, we're going to have to rely on... I mean, as human beings... There's going to be, no matter who you are, there's going to be a point in your life where you're going to have to rely on the fact that other humans are empathetic. That's whether you break your foot in walking down the street and you want someone to help you and call an ambulance, or that's whether you end up on hard times, you lose your job, or you have a bad breakup and you need someone to cry on their shoulder. And that's what, you know, just as human beings, we are all going to be in a position where we're relying on other human beings having empathy for us. And that's us as a community. We have to rely on other people having empathy for us and understanding that, that all human beings are the same and every human being is going to go through something in which they're going to need other humans to stick up for them you know fight for them advocate for them and that's whether you're an immigrant whether you're uh, uh you know who's just arrived in a country who doesn't know how to speak the language gonna need someone to help them you know advocate for them to say we're able to get housing or you know, there's so many different ways in which we can stick up for each other as human beings and so yes allyship whatever <laughs> it's a weird word but allyship is important but doesn't it just mean being a decent human being doesn't just mean having empathy doesn't mean just having love for other human beings i mean i kind of that's that's my idea of allyship and 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 to and to i suppose for us to kind of like claim it as something that lgbt community has that no one else has is a weird thing i completely agree with you like it's it feels 
slightly odd, but also I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for, for I'm grateful for human beings who care about other human beings, who have love for other human beings, who show up for other human beings. Okay, I'm going to bring in a listener comment from um, which picks up on something you've just said, Dan. Rachel on Twitter says, the word ally can sound charitable when really it's about being a decent human being. This is basically what Anne Hathaway said when she was called brave for being an ally. Brackets, her brother is gay. So, Ruth, I'd love to know what you think. All these people who are styling themselves as allies, what do you think it takes to make a good ally? Dan has mentioned empathy as being a key point. I agree. You have to, well, you have to have empathy, but these are these are hum, these are people. They're just like us. They're just like you. They're just like me. You are you, and you are me. And you know, we are our brothers' keepers. And you know, being a a Christian that I am, and I you know always <laughs> nowadays hate to use that word, but. You know, that's what the Bible teaches us is to, you know, feed the hungry, to care for the sick, the poor, the, you know, whoever it is, just give them a hand up or just sit down there with them and listen to them. Sometimes that's all it takes. Um, Absolutely. I'm wondering whether, um, so Mishti, I'm going to ask you as the youngest person in this discussion, um, lots of allies from history, I mentioned politicians earlier, so lots of us have heard of Lord Wolfenden, who published the report recommending decriminalisation of gay sex, 1957. What about the politicians who introduced the bill in 1967, 10 years later, on his recommendations? Do we... Um, actually, I feel like I've singled you out now, and this is unfair. <laughs> Do any of us here know anything about them? And should we know something about these key allies who changed the world for us? I feel like um, I should be recognising somehow their contribution to my life. I feel like I've not um, been as grateful to these men or women, if they were, for their allyship. What do you think, Mishti, first? Um... I mean, I think it's good to, uh, you know, look at the impact of, you know, the report and how policy was then implemented as a result of it. I think things like that are great. But I think that when we start focusing on who to recognise and, you know, how do we recognise them and what do we recognise um, as a significant achievement, then it, then I think it can get dangerous. I think that when it comes to um, social justice and when it comes to activism in general, unfortunately, um, we are moving into a world where things are becoming a lot more performative. And I would be concerned that if that becomes a focus for the past what does that mean for our future is recognition always going to be the focal point yeah i know what you mean it's about the achievements but lord wolfenden for example had a gay son so that was about human connection empathy um i feel like as a community i don't think we celebrate what he did enough what do you think dan if he hadn't had a gay son would he would would the would, i mean the wolfenden report is also not perfect there's lots of stuff in the wolfenden report which i think a lot of us would reject nowadays obviously because it was you know it was, it was still referring to us as as sick essentially it was saying that oh, yeah. you know you know there, there was problems in that report and and so it, it was complex right. but you know i also think that that there's there's i don't know uh, there's something to be said for us knowing our history and that's slightly different than pedestaling people. Okay, fantastic. Right, there's lots I want to pick up on. Before we have a music break, Ruth, I got, I heard some rumblings. Is there something you want to say? 
No, I was just uh, agreeing with that. Okay, fantastic. We've got lots of listener comments on this subject. Hazel says on Twitter, a good ally is vocal, visible and consistent. Adrian on Twitter says, an ally is someone who is respectful, speaks up where others might not feel they can, being visible and being supportive, being genuine and not just doing not just doing this because it seemed to be popular. Jazz on Twitter, to be a good ally for anyone in any group, just be kind and supportive. I'd say try to educate people, but with some folk, it's impossible. Like Forrest said, I think this is Forrest Gump, stupid is as stupid does. You can't push yourself onto a group any more than they can appoint you. Just be kind, that's all. Okay, so... As I hinted at the beginning of this discussion, we want to talk about how somebody earns the title of ally. So, Ruth, as our ally in residence, when was the first time you heard some? You were aware of somebody using that word about you? Uh, You know, it wasn't until uh, recently, until um, probably two thousand and fourteen when the first article came out about me and they mentioned that I was an ally and I thought, oh, well, that's pretty cool. But, you know, who appointed me as an ally? I had just never heard of the war, you know, never thought of myself as an ally. I just thought of myself as, you know, loving another human being enough to step out, you know, in the way of a train for them. And you say you didn't know who had appointed you. Um, Do you think, just going back to this central question we want to explore, do you think someone can self-identify as an ally? Or do you think that status needs to be conferred on them from someone within the queer community? You know, I really think it should be conferred from within because who am I to say that I'm an I can say I'm an ally, but am I a good ally? Am I a a true ally? Am I an ally that is always there? And, you know... Well, Ruth... Ruth, I can answer that question for you. Yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. You're at the top here. of the list. A hundred percent. Right. I'll tell you what, though, on that subject. Um, so Ruth has said, you know, some people are, is, you know, is she a good enough ally? Mishti, what do you think about people who claim allyship without really backing it up, without being very good, without doing anything to deserve the honour? Do you think we should call it out? Yeah, I think it's just hollow words and people should be called out for any type of, you know, claim that's baseless. <laughs> um, Have you come across this kind of thing much? Um, not necessarily with people calling themselves active allies. Um, I guess more with people who would go, oh, yeah, I've not got any problems um, with LGBTQ people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you guys live your life. That's completely fine. Um and who, you know, claim to be absolutely, you know, disgusted um, by things that we might go through. And then at the same time, when they're faced with something that might, you know, question their personal beliefs or the things that they'd held to be true beforehand, they find it really difficult. And I think that that's a true indicator of allyship because we, we mentioned earlier um, how attitudes in general are changing. And as those attitudes change, our expectation of what a normal level of acceptance is should change as well. It's not enough now for people to go, yeah, I don't have any problem with you. Because <laughs> what does that mean? Well, it's interesting. Yeah, that's horrible. 
Yes, absolutely agreed, Mishti and Ruth. Um, Dan, as our representative from the entertainment industry, so Mishti's mentioned, you know, what we consider normal <laughs> is changing. It seems to me now, standard, a default, anybody in the entertainment industry, particularly front of camera, public facing, has to, I know that there's some exceptions, but has to um, say that they are an ally. Um but are there people you think, not? I'm not asking you to name any, but do you think some people just pay lip service to this and don't actually back it up, Dan? It's interesting, isn't it? Because you think about, historically speaking, you know, the fact that we've got to this position where someone, you know, uh, in order to sell records or in order to, to be a star in the movies and to get work, in order to be... They actually have to be ashamed of themselves if they're not... You know, they have to be so ashamed of themselves if they're not supportive of our community. That's like an amazing place we've got to. Yeah. Where essentially they're all, they're you know, terrified to, to, to be homophobic. And why would they be homophobic? And that's really interesting because we're getting to this place now where we're kind of like, you know, I kind of feel, I feel bad, you know, shaming someone for like, saying i'm an ally because what they're saying is i'm i'm not a complete homophobe i'm i'm not hateful i'm not you know so i do feel bad for them because like, what are they going to say they're going to say i'm not an ally i'm an ally it becomes this weird thing where it's like an on-off binary thing and it's it's not as simple as ally yeah. not ally yeah. it's like i'm an ally I, I you know to say I'm really supportive of a, of a community and I'm, I'm, I'm willing to learn about a community. I'm interested in a community and I want to help a community. And if I see people being oppressed, I want to stick up for them. That's, that's allyship. But it's, it's, you know, that might be, there might be other people who are much more active even than that. Well, and, it, and it's a bit like, well, we, if we turn it into this kind of thing where you either are or you aren't, it's kind of binary switch that you can switch on or off, then it, it, it takes out all the nuance and the complexity of what it is to be a human being in this modern world when we've all got so much to learn and so much to keep up with. You know, I wouldn't necessarily want to call myself an ally when I've got so much to learn about my own community. Like, I mean, I'm not able to keep up always with all the latest, you know, uh, developments within my own community, let alone expect someone who's not from my community to do it as well. You know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a bit too forgiving of people. I want people to just not be, you know... Uh, Horrible. <laughs> no, I was going to say a swear word. Like, but, like, <laughs> don't say it. Don't, but, you know, to just not be ghastly. Now, that's all we really want, is people to not be ghastly <laughs> and to have a bit of love for their fellow human beings. <laughs> oh, you know, absolutely, absolutely. And Ruth's agreeing. But funnily enough, actually, it just dawned on me when you were talking then, it's still relatively, it's such a new discussion to talk about allies and what allies mean. You know, when I was growing up, as Ruth said, she wasn't called an ally at the time in the 80s. When I was growing up in the 80s, um, we, you know, the idea of it, I mean, actually the act of being an ally was still so unusual, there wouldn't be a name for it. In the 90s, people started using the word fag hag, uh, which yeah. was kind of um, meant to be fun. And I mean, it sounds so pejorative and horrible now, but Ruth, how do you feel about that word? Did anybody call you that word? Well, you know, I have been called a lot of things. How <laughs> <laughs> you and me both, darling? <laughs> I have been called a lot of things. And I don't know, uh, people had too much respect for what I was doing to call me a fag hag. Uh -huh. not, not that it was a bad word back then, but boy, was it overused. And fag yeah. hag just to me meant you went out and partied with them. It didn't mean you held a bag while they threw up in it. 
it didn't mean that you wiped their brow when they had a fever. It didn't mean that you took care of them when they were their sickest. It, to me, it just meant that you went out and had fun with them, which was greatly needed. Um, absolutely. And it's interesting, actually. Um, obviously, you were operating as an ally at you know, a very intense level. For me, growing up in a homophobic environment in the 80s at school, the girls, oh. you know, the girls who stuck up for me, who stuck up for me in the playground, who wanted to be my friend, who would go out with me, who would go to clubs with me a bit later on in life and be called fag hags, um, they played a massive role in me, actually. To a certain extent, they saved my life. And, um, okay. you know, it's only recently I've started to say to them, I wrote an article for Grazia magazine talking about my female friends and how they, you know, and it's only recently I've started to express my gratitude. And yes, as a community, we shouldn't need to feel grateful for people treating us as human beings. But in those days, right. in those days, um, you know, those female allies were so important. What do you think, Dan? Did you have, you know, that, that special bond that you sometimes get between sexually confident, liberal, straight women who may have been slut-shamed for certain ideas and behaviours and gay men who mm -hmm. were all considered yes. sluts and kind of sexually deviant anyway. Yeah, we had that thing in common, naturally. We had, yes. a, we had a kind of thing in that we were second-class citizens regardless. Yes. So, so you know, women yeah. had a, a, a secondary place in society as as and as did queer people. So you had that, that certain connection, that certain thing in common in that you knew that you weren't the alpha in the situation. And I think that humans can be ghastly. They can be awful. They can be feeble and and weak and they can and 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 i'm just i'm grateful for the ones who show up for you grateful for the ones that are there for you grateful for the ones that see you grateful for the ones that recognize you and and are interested in you and you know and i i i, I do think that whether we come up with nicknames for them or whatever i be always just always grateful for the ones who 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 are interested in you enough to care and and have fun with you as well and party with you and all of these things are important but also be there for you when you need them and i think that that we should just be grateful for them and we're, i think i think it doesn't really matter what we call them yeah i think we just need to make sure that we we we, we register we, we and like you say you get to a certain age and you recognize them and you go oh my god yeah you were yeah, great yeah. you were important and you and you yeah. really stuck you were yeah. there for me so i think the important thing is that we recognize them and we're grateful for them okay ruth i'm going to come to you in just a second for the last word before i, I do misty right. i just want to quickly ask Mishti, um, can you envisage, so we're talking about allyship becoming standard now or about Javona, can you envisage a time in the future when, you know, it will be so standard that people won't even talk about it? Um, I don't Or do you actually, hope to see that? I mean, I, I'd love to see it, but I just don't think that it's something that's going to be happening in the near future. I mean, even just going off personal experience, people who I, I would have, you know, happily considered to be allies, and then think th things happen. I, I have a friend who, um, you know, meant a lot to me, well, does mean a lot to me. But then we had a conversation about, well, would you ever date a bisexual man? And then it all starts coming out. Mm -hmm. And people don't necessarily transfer their worldview always on, they don't, always apply the same rules and logic yeah. to their personal lives unfortunately um, and I'm 
presuming that's something that's a lot more co- common than we might expect because how many of us really have those conversations with our friends you assume that they're always going to say you know yeah I'm fine with everything I'm fine with you aren't I um, and it just well, doesn't turn out that way unfortunately okay fantastic thank you very much for that we need to wrap up Ruth I want to come back to you and your amazing book when you were helping gay men on these AIDS wards did and all the all the experiences you talk about in all the young men did it ever occur to you that one day you would be on a radio show in a different continent being celebrated for it? Uh, no, never, never. I um, I did have a psychic tell me in 1990 that my wor- my name would be known worldwide. And I thought, oh, he's not a very good psychic. <laughs> <laughs> well, your name is known. And thank you very much for everything you've done. Thank you for writing such a fantastic book. All the Young Men is out now, published from Trapeze Books. Thank you very much, Ruth. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Lots of love. This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. So, Mishti, tell us, let's just have pause and have a little chat in between our debates. When we last met you, you were just about to go back to Cambridge to continue your studies. What's it been like going back to the city? Has anything changed since you were last there in terms of it reawakening post-COVID? Oh, we're not post yet, are we? But, you know. Yeah, um... I think the one thing that I realised was just how much I miss my friends. Um, It feels really empty and strange. I mean, I hadn't even realised until I went back how much I actually missed Cambridge, the place itself. Um, I mean, I've been living there for almost a year now and that doesn't feel like long enough to have kind of grown that attachment to the place. Um, And yet I have. I think that it's just so nice to be away and be able to see the stars when you've grown up in London. Oh, absolutely. And tell us, we're going to be um, we're going to be talking about Pride events in a minute and um, how they should change um, going forward post pandemic, which we hope will be soon. But I know in terms of your journalism, you've recently written an article about pink washing. Can you um, explain what this means and why you feel so passionately about it? Yeah. Um, so pinkwashing is basically when corporations, people, or you know, governments try to use basically weaponize um, queer issues and use that to cover up their own shortcomings. Um, so, for example, and this has happened a few times when some of maybe the bigger auditing firms um, might have been pulled up for some like a terrible scandal that they've been involved in um, in the press, but then you'll see them like 50 of them or more um, all waving their flags and their banners at Pride and they've you know paid for a special spot um, and I the reason that that is so important for me is I think that I've you know long been a kind of a skeptical of capitalism overall um, but when it starts hurting the people that Pride was meant to be for and we start moving away from Pride's original cause I think that's incredibly toxic. Okay, interesting. We're going to be talking about that in just a minute. But I would love to know, actually, so when we talk about journalism, it's usually or it's often bad news stories. And um, there's often with queer reporting a lot of emphasis on bad things that are happening to our community. Mm. Do you think there are enough positive news stories out there for us? And if not, how can we change that and bring more attention other than what we do here on Virgin Radio (laughs) Pride when we try to be celebratory? I think that we need to stop 
talking about how upsetting things are um there's I mean, this is probably me drawing a bit too much on my degree, but there's a great essay, um, quite old now, by Susan Sontag, called something like regarding the pain of others or on the suffering of others. I can't remember the name, but in it, she basically argues that in over-presenting and over-exposing ourselves to these images of suffering, um, we're basically devaluing them and dehumanising um, the subjects in the process. And I think that the same goes for our community. We need to be, you know, spotlighting moments of pride and of joy um, because that's what being human is always all about. It's interesting you say that. Um, are there any particular areas? So I know um, on the negative side, pinkwashing you feel strongly about, as well as capitalism in general. <laughs> But um, are there any areas of queer life um, or any issues that affect our community that are positive that you think we should be drawing attention to? I'm asking, you know, as a journalist rather than a student. Um, I think particularly one piece that I recently worked on um, was on drag queens who are, you know, platforming their own cultures and incorporating that into their drag and I think it's lovely seeing how you know intersectional people's identities are and you know people I think often unfortunately people will conflate being an immigrant and being part of an immigrant culture with being you know inherently homophobic for example and these people are you know completely proving that to be untrue both parts of that are both parts of their identity are parts that they take pride in and they make them whole and seeing things that even I grew up with um, and seeing that reframed is incredibly moving and I would argue far more powerful than simply rehashing the same stories of oppression. I love it on RuPaul's Drag Race when um, the queens kind of incorporate elements of their cultural heritage if they're if they're queens of colour um, I always think it makes such an impact and it can be so stirring when you see it on the runway. Yeah, I think that people, I mean, I think it's not necessarily often that we see people, you know, experimenting with gender in um, uh, in sorry other cultural clothing simply because we're not exposed to those cultures clothing enough anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. lovely seeing how that actually works. And funnily enough, you, um, you wrote a piece about, for Gay Times, I think it was, about earlier this year, about how LGBTQ plus creatives are bringing people together and obviously cohesion, unity are very important to our community, often very lacking. How do you think we can be more understanding towards those of different cultures um, to appreciate the intersectionality of our community? Um, this is actually something that Shardine Taylor-Stone said to me once when I was interviewing her. Um, she once said that Often when we talk about the queer community, we talk about it as something that's separate and cut off. And of course, no community is an island. There are so many other communities within that. And, you know, community and identity, it's like a giant Venn diagram. Everything's overlapping and it's nuanced and we should embrace that. So when we're having discussions about, you know, the queer community, we need to ensure that we're not treating it as a monolith. Oh, that's, that's a really interesting point. All right, so tell us, what is your focus going to be um, professionally or as a journalist, should I say, for the next year? What are your plans going <laughs> forward? Hmm, I mean, I, 
I'd like to continue writing. Um, I think particularly at the moment, I'm really enjoying working um, on stories, you know, continuing to work on stories from marginalised communities. But I think that my already my writing style has changed a lot. I know that when I look back on like my first pieces, I do kind of grimace. Where do you get, where do you get to my age? When I look back on stuff I wrote when I was in my early 20s, it's horrendous, some of it. But I think it'll be quite nice to, you know, move more into... Um, I think I'd quite like to move into some more multimedia stuff. Um, I think it's always good to have a wide variety of skills. You know, the world's constantly changing and it's a terrifying world sometimes. I saw recently um, that Vice laid off a bunch of people and then we have the Huff Post earlier this year, unfortunately. Um, and I guess you just kind of have to be prepared for anything. <laughs> well, and all the more reason to um, make some time in between the journalism to study on your degree. <laughs> So that you're in a good position to get a job at the end of it. Of course. Do you, how do you how do you how do you cope with kind of juggling your time? And are you good at time management? Um. So I've not diagnosed yet, but I'm pretty sure I have ADHD, which probably allows for me to do all of these things. In honesty, um, I was told even when I was younger that I'm like abnormally high energy. <laughs> um. So I guess it makes sense for me. But then also I like the fact that particularly during lockdown. I wasn't going out to parties. I wasn't going out and meeting people. I didn't have like people that I knew even in Cambridge. And so I needed something to split up my day. And, you know, being able to write alongside my degree rather than constantly reading and constantly watching lectures, that really broke up. Yeah. Midway world is slightly different. I means that I know the world better outside of Cambridge as much as I love it. <laughs> Okay, fantastic. Mishti Ali, stick around with your abnormally high energy. <laughs> the Sunday Roast with Matt Kane. Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Matt Kane, and you're listening to my Sunday Roast on Virgin Radio Pride. My delightful panel, Dan Gillespie Sells and Mishti Ali, are still with me. And now we're going to be talking about the evolution of Pride. So, part of the reason Virgin Radio Pride exists is to make up for the lack of real physical Pride events this year. Most of them have now been cancelled for two consecutive years. Some others, on the other hand, have started bringing, springing back to life. Over the last few weeks, we've had Margate and Manchester Pride, to name just two. But with the rebirth of Prides comes the regurgitation of all the usual discussions and arguments about over-commercialisation and the true spirit and purpose of the Pride movement. I want to avoid criticism of specific Prides and the individuals who run them, because they're not here to defend themselves, justify their actions but I want to ask the question moving forward from the pandemic and moving forward from the pause to think that it's given all of us how do pride events need to evolve to best serve our community I am thrilled at this point to be joined by Carl Austin Bean OBE Carl served in the RAF but was forced to leave due to his sexuality he became a prominent community activist and served as the first openly gay Lord Mayor of Manchester he's now the LGBT advisor to the Metro Mayor of Greater Manchester to Andy Burnham. He's also a former Mr. Gay UK, winning the competition in 2001. But most importantly for us, he's a trustee of several queer charities and for years was an ambassador for Manchester Pride until stepping down in protest earlier this year. So, Carl, that was a big introduction. First of all, thank you very much for joining us. 
No, no, it's a pleasure. Yeah, I, I stood down uh, last year um, when 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 I, I, I sort of you know when the pandemic sort of kicked in and, and the way that things were working. I just um, yeah, I, I made my decisions based on what 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 I knew and what I I didn't feel comfortable with. And I think picking up on your comment, you said then uh, your first sort of question that sort of posed into it about you know how do we go forward? And I think one thing here in Greater Manchester, you know, we've got 10 boroughs across Greater Manchester, you know, that, that covers nearly 3 million people. Now, one thing that I was really pleased with in 2019, we actually managed to have a pride event in all of the 10 boroughs. And that could have been whether or not it was just something, you know, a small event, whether it was something, um, you know, within the town centre, uh, you know, like in Wigan, where we got them in Bolton, Rochdale. I was we, there we at the Bolton one with you. We, we shared the stage together in Bolton. We did. And I, think, and I think that, for me, is something that's really critical, the fact that making it local. So even like this weekend, you know, Disbury Pride um, took place. Um, and also, you know, we, we have um, the, the smaller Pride, Levenshume Prides. And I think that's something that should be sort of coming up across the whole country now, whereas you make it so it's not about a big commercial entity. You make it about what Pride is for you, and it's about bringing making it so it's about the community, making it normalised that people can see rainbow flags as they walk up their little shop, shopping centre. If you've only got 15 shops in your area and there's a, a rainbow flag, that speaks volumes than, than just throwing it all in a town centre. OK, fantastic. On the other hand, what about your big cities that get a lot of the attention in the mainstream media and on new media, social media? Things like London, Manchester, Brighton, Prides. We're old enough to remember them going through various incarnations from protest marches to, I remember when they were um, called Mardi Gras and there were parties in parks outside the city centre and it was just Atomic Kitten and Steps playing. And now there's this hybrid where a lot of them have um, big stars, whether it's Britney Spears, Ariana Grande playing and your protests and your parties. What, I mean, what do you think about the big city ones? Yeah. So, so you're right about the big cities. I mean, the reason why I went for Mr. Gay UK, and I'm still as proud as winning that title as I am now, as I was back in 2001, I wanted to normalise being gay. You know, the big cities, yes, you're right. You know, if you were gay and you were from Manchester, you were from Birmingham, you were from London, you were from Brighton, um, it was brilliant. You know, we could show off everything that we had and, and it was very uh, vibrant. It was, it was about showing who we were as a community in them cities. But if you came from Rochdale, if you came from Bolton, if you came from Shropshire, it was really difficult because you never had that sort of role model. You never had those sort of people around you. So do you think... Sorry, go on. Go on. And and the reason I went for Mr Gay UK was to try and sort of break down those stereotypes. Because I think a lot of people back then, the stereotypes was the Muscle Marys, your Mincing Queens, you know, your Julian Clary's, your Larry Grayson's of of TV at at that particular time. You know, you Sean Tully's of Coronation Street. You know, I wanted to normalise the fact that, you know, I'd been in the Air Force, I'd been a fireman, I'd been stacking shells in Asda. So it's about normalising being gay. And I think that's why it's important to to have the smaller prize. But you are right. You do need the, you know, the, 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 the big events that take place. But again, you know, for me, even in Manchester, I, I preferred it when it was all LGBTQ plus people and allies coming together um, and having sort of, you know, your, your Angie Brown you know, you, you sort of, you small sort of uh, people sort of come bringing communities together. We don't need a massive music festival. Okay, right. On that front, I just want to bring uh, our panel in. Um, 
Dan, do you think you've been to lots of different incarnations of Pride? Do you think the big city ones are, when they become a big music festival, are losing sight of what is important? Um, uh, that has happened. I mean, that has happened. I've, I've, I mean, my first Pride, I was five. My mother, my mother took me, and I had a little banner that says, "My mum's a lesbian, and I love her." So, and I was standing next to her, and this photograph kind of went everywhere when I was a kid in all these sociology books because it was obviously such a kind of strange, freakish image. Um, but you know, uh, it, it, it's funny because it's kind of um, the fracturing that's happened now. Obviously, it got bigger and bigger. It got unrecognisable. It turned into something that looked very corporate and you had to have wristbands to march and it was all very strange. It was confusing to me, actually. I just felt completely alienated from it. And then and then recently I, I started attending Black Pride and, and Trans Pride and the Prides that have splintered off from it. And, and I've kind of regained my sense of community again even though you know i'm 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 only there as a as a as an ally let's say you know but i will i will show up at these other prides and i go oh that re that reminds me of pride how it used to be you know little a little kind of community event a little bit more niche a little bit more community based and a little bit more kind of um, political okay right interesting so um carl mentioned the music in particular so mishti is the youngest person in the discussion how do you feel about pride's paying a lot of money to get whether it's Britney Spears are Ariana Grande performing on one hand if you don't have the big stars loads of queer people are moaning on social media that it's a load of has-beens on the other if you have them um, people say we're spending too much money on them and then at the same time if we want to send a message around the world of acceptance and visibility is this useful or does it disconnect us from the spirit of pride what's your take um, I think that my concern would be less about the fact that they're paying for these people to come and more where the money is actually coming from. Um, I think especially now when we look not just at Pride, but um, generally at like more mainstream queer events, it's becoming a lot more normal um, to have some people with seriously, well, not people, sorry, um, some bodies and corporations with some seriously questionable ethics and histories there and I don't think that we should be giving those people the right to be in our spaces. Yep. I mean the thing is I have to say I feel quite forgiving because when I was growing up no big corporations wanted to shout about their LGBT staff for example. So when I go on their Pride March now and um, I don't know whether it's the co-op or British Airways or whoever that is wants to say, look, we want to march proudly with the LGBTQ plus community. I'm just so kind of grateful for that. But do you think we have gone too far down the corporate route, Mishti? Yeah, um, I 100% think we have. I wrote a piece for Huck just last week um, on pinkwashing and a more recent event that's happened. And the event in question, the organisers still have yet to actually say anything about the concerns that people have raised. Um, and, you know, people who have previously been involved in the event have also <laughs> made statements, quite influential people, and still nothing's being done. Um, so I think that when we're not listening to the community, 
who are those events actually for then? Okay, right. I want to ask Carl, as our expert on this subject, talking about the community. So, can I just ask, a lot of cities where I'm, I kind of know what's going on in the gay scene, a lot of the bars say we need a big pride and a big celebration for us to make money to carry on contributing to our community. Do you think, um, if we're talking about the mix, that sense of partying and celebration, um, is it where it should be in the mix or is it too high in the mix? Right, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna throw in a couple of things there. So I wanna pick up on what was said a little bit earlier about the, the this whole sort of commercialization. Go on. Now, and that's, and that's because the fact that I've been in situations where I've had conversations with people, uh, community groups, charity organizations, people who've been at you know, the heart and soul of our communities, right on the ground that are not allowed a, a, an entry into the parade because they've either run out of uh, numbers because they'd rather have 200 people from one organization just because they've given it, you know, they've paid about 15,000 pounds to march in a, in, a, in a parade. And I think that's where it's lost its, its roots, the fact that, you know, the money is it's become very greedy in that sort of sense. When you're talking about the bars, um, you know, that, that I, I agree that you want to have keep it, especially for Manchester, you keep it within the village, but, when you're asking people to pay for a ticket um, to, to sort of come within the village, but actually the money that is being spent on that ticket is to pay for an infrastructure of a music festival half a mile down the road. That is wrong. That is that is not bringing people to 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 an area where we, where people are drinking, or well, to where the bars and where people want to congregate. Okay, um, and and and, and it, no no, and it, and it is that thing is about you know for for me the parade is a crucial element. But you should not be turning uh, small youth organisations who were who sort of, you know, get some of those children and some of the young people coming into terms with their LGBTQ plus because you'd rather have uh, a massive amount of people or even trying to trying to charge a charity even five hundred pound is is ludicrous when they should be getting free entries in these sort of marches. Okay, fantastic. How about there's been lots of concerns with some prides high ticket pricing for, as you say, the music, the infrastructure for the music festivals. What about the um, defence of some prides that they have a youth pride um, element or an arts festival that are free to access? Do you think this is enough? No, because I think that, that, that again, is, you know, they'll, sort, they'll, they'll, they'll sort of throw that element in that it's free, but it's not really free. It's free to those people attending, but it's been paid for, you know, through the, the infrastructure, and it's great to do that. But then there's, there's, there's other funding that can be available for them, type of things. And it also depends on the particular pride. So I know that, you know, there's some pride events that take place around the country. They're not there to make money for charity. They're there. They do charge, but they charge to pay for the artists. They charge to to pay for the acts, and they pay for the infrastructure. Whereas with some prides, and I'm not naming any prides, but there's always been the element that, we the, 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 the part the element of what you're paying for goes to charity and it supports charities okay fantastic i want to ask dan gillespie sells he's been going to prides for longer than anybody else on the panel <laughs> since he was five does the uh, so you mentioned the element of protest was really big when you went to your first one does this element of protest need to be as high up in the mix as it used to be or now that we're getting closer to having equal rights here should celebration of the progress we've made come higher in the mix 
And is it fine for us to have a big party or should we shift the focus of the protest and give it an international perspective or put more of an emphasis on the injustices suffered by our trans siblings? What do you think? Protest, celebration? Give us your take. I don't separate them, actually. I don't separate them at all. I don't think they're separate. I don't think they have to happen. You know, they happen alongside each other. The, the sad thing is when one thing gets missed out. And so when protest gets missed out, the idea of solidarity with our, our, our queer siblings overseas gets missed out. You know, we, we should be able to do both things. We should have the imagination to to have fabulous entertainment and fabulous, you know, have a fabulous party, but include, you know, solidarity. We should be they, those things used to happen in tandem. It was it was all, you know, pride when I was growing up was it was always both at the same time. And that's not just pride. There's a history of it in our country, Rock Against Racism, you know, and all of these amazing events. They, they, they were they were kind of cultural, uh, colourful, beautiful events, but that were about something. And I think we can make pride about something and still make it incredibly entertaining and the best night out ever and the best day out ever for people. And it can still inspire people because I think that was the other important, you know, Lots of queer kids coming from places where they, they couldn't walk down the street and be themselves to be able to go to a big city and to be able to walk down the street and feel part of something and feel part of their community. That still has value. OK, so that also slightly depends on scale, doesn't it? And the bigness of it sends out such a positive message. Mishti, so we're talking about, you know, Carl's mentioned scaled back grassroots community prides. Do you think, um, obviously there's a big benefit with these, but also there's a benefit that comes with the scale. It sends out a positive, you know, it can have that um, really positive message to people taking part, as Dan says, but also we can send out a positive message all over the world to people who live in countries where it's not acceptable, considered acceptable to be gay, that um, there are places where it's celebrated on a huge scale and that's a really positive thing. What's your take on this? I think that I I agree with both actually. I think that um, in one sense, yes, it will be it's lovely to you know be able to go into central London and see all these people looking absolutely gorgeous, really enjoying themselves, you know, waving their rainbow flags. And I I mean I've only been once, and I was actually only because I was working, so my first pride has technically not happened yet. <laughs> but I enjoyed seeing it, and um, I think that the problem is when we fail to carry over the same values that we have when those were initially starting off and the values that are upheld within more grassroots versions we need to make sure that those are still transferable yes but do you not think that um prides need to evolve with the the social context in which they are operating you know we well, the problem i've seen with with some of the latest projects they haven't evolved enough actually they haven't they're not keeping up with us they're not keeping up with the young people they're really behind the scenes. They're being run by people who are totally out of date. And that's often what happens. So you see some of the people that run these events and they, and they, are, they are not keeping up with what the young people want and what our community as a whole wants and needs. So they're still going and cap in hand to corporations and, and trying to sell them a you know, a, a gold package, you know, a premier package, you know, a kind of thing with a, with a brunch and a, and a thing where they can take their corporate clients to some awful thing. And, and you know what? The corporations don't want that. The corporations are turning around and going, this is naff. So, <laughs> I mean, everyone's turning around going, this is naff. So, so that's the problem. They're not even keeping up with what people want. Even the corporations want to be more on in touch with the with queer people than they are. So, so that's, that is really happening. I'm seeing that happening quite a lot. 
Okay, brilliant. Right, Carl, I want to come back to you for the last word. So everybody's got all these different ideas about what pride means, what the spirit of pride is, what the purpose is. I've not even got, had a chance to read out any listener comments. <laughs> but one thing is clear that we've got all these different ideas, but pride still is meant, one of its big purposes is to bring us together as a community. So if we disagree about the very point of it, how can we all come together in a pride and um, not fall out about it? Because we need to get the right people around the table, a bit like what Dan just said then, you know, that some of the people that are organising, it shouldn't be, it, sh- it should be communities that, that are organising these events and it should be bringing bar owners, the community, you know, people who have got an interest in that community coming around and sort of, who, who, who see it on a day-to-day basis and are a part of that. And it shouldn't be about people's egos. It shouldn't be about what people can make make out of themselves. It shouldn't be about a business. This is really, for me. It's about the grassroots. It's about making sure that um, our voices are heard. And you know, we've seen what is you know for our trans community. You know that they should be. Everyone should feel like they're welcoming and embraced. And I've seen you know some some marches where that isn't taking place. And then bringing communities together as as part of. Uh, we talk about all the different prides taking place. You know, we've also got to remember we've got International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia. That's a day that I think we as a community should should do more about. The amount of times that I mention Ida Hobbit and people look at me as if I'm stupid. They don't understand what Ida Hobbit means, what it's about, you know, and that to me is, is what we should be fighting for, to making sure that we're fighting again for, for equality for everybody. All right, Carl, thank you very much. Your voice has been heard. Thank you very much for joining Thank us. Thank you. Happy Pride. This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. I am Matt Kane. This is my Sunday Rose for Virgin Radio Pride. And we're going to round things off now by having a little lighter chat about musical theatre. Are we all fans? Why have musicals become such a staple of queer culture? Also, they're one of the areas that have been worst hit by the pandemic. So how do we think they're going to recover? Let's start by asking Dan, our music musical man other than your own which are your favorite musicals i hate them all <laughs> no i don't really that's a lie um i liked the really i grew up kind of um liking some of the kind of and actually i got into musical theater through my dad oh that's my heterosexual father so that's a slightly weird thing but but he was into rocky horror picture show weirdly because he liked all these kind of like he was a bit edgy he liked kind of slightly edgy weird kind of like countercultural kind of things like that so he was into that and we also loved um little shop of horrors and anything that looked like a b movie you know what i mean i'd like a like b movie-ish kind of like kind of genre kind of twisting rock and roll musicals I'm getting those a, kind of things i'm getting a better idea of the vibe in your the little <laughs> village that you grew up in yes i know it's strange isn't it so so it was it was that kind of stuff and then i think i really only really discovered musicals when i got a bit older um Properly, properly, properly. But then also we grew up with, you know, Sound of Music on the TV every Christmas. And, you know, we had like Mary, Mary Poppins, Poppins was always, you know, it's almost like such a big part of our culture and everyone's culture that how do you not, you know, you just know it, don't you? And I think um, one of the major influences on me was when I kind of discovered West Side Story and some of that stuff a little bit later on down the line. I was like, wow, this is 
so musically mind-blowing and sophisticated that that I kind of I did I did drift into a bit of a musical theatre geekdom but it really it, uh, we never went to musicals when we were kids or anything it wasn't like we were watching shows or anything no I didn't but you're right they, they were always around certainly they were on the telly weren't yeah. they and then also you had that amazing era of 90s musicals that were essentially the cartoon ones so you've got the Disney ones you know what I mean like as soon as yes, Little Mermaid yes, came out yes. you've got that and then you've got Aladdin Lion King, and Aladdin. Lion King all of those kind of great movie musicals and stuff so you know that big 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 influence of that so did you grow up with them Mishti while we're talking about them being everywhere <laughs> were they everywhere for you when you were growing up Oh, yeah. I mean, that was back when we still had like the big boxy VHSs. Um, I remember my dad didn't know what to do with my sister and I. So he just stick them in and we'd watch them over and over and over. And I mean, my sister and I, well, not now, but like even <laughs> her as a medical student and me being like, you know, a legal adult, we'd still put on like Sit some in. of the karaoke versions on YouTube and of have course. a sing. Amazing. <laughs> which, were, which were your favourites? Can you remember? Um, I think looking back, I really liked Anastasia, which I think is a DreamWorks oh, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I quite like Tangled. I don't know what's it's a newer oh, one, yeah. but I really liked the music from um, The Little Mermaid. And I mean, I think most little brown girls will always say Aladdin. <laughs> In hindsight. Oh, whenever I watch it now, it's always a bit weird. It's a you bit start... problematic we yeah. watch it now, but, but at the time, come <laughs> I on. How is this for problematic? I used to think Aladdin was quite fit. <laughs> we all thought Aladdin was fit. Don't even, don't, anyone who claims they didn't think Aladdin was fit is lying. I think you can would... fancy a cartoon, it's true. You can totally fancy a Hercules. Where else do we go with this? There's plenty of fit ones. Hercules was amazing. I loved Hercules. Yes, Hercules. Oh, I loved it, but I'm just talking about him being fit. Oh, <laughs> Okay, on a serious level, Dan, where do you think, besides Hercules' muscles, where do you think the connection comes from between queer people and musical theatre? I have a theory, I'll tell you my theory quickly. I think that they're so joyous and such an extreme expression of emotion and lots of us grew up having to suppress that kind of um, blossoming and expression of emotion, particularly the more feminine, in inverted commas, emotions, that this is a kind of outlet for them. What do you think? Or do you have a different theory? Do you think I'm talking rubbish? No, I think you're completely right. I think what it is, is that, you know, uh, uh, musical theatre is like... I think we are... I think what what queer people can do, and one of the most radical things that queer people do, is, is an expression of joy. Yes. I think that's why you know when, when pride happens, it's it's and a pride when it's at its best is a political expression of joy, and that's not to say that the the colour, and the vibrancy, and the music, and the dancing takes away from the politics because it is the politics because what it is is us stepping out there showing the world that we are we are happy and we are good in ourselves you know we're good about who we are and we're going to own it and we're stepping out of the world and i do think also that the 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 repression of expression of joy is a big part of like a masculine ideal and i think you're right i think it's 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 that whole thing about like enjoying music and dancing and fabulousness and costumes and you know it's such a not an i a uh iconic male kind of uh, uh, behaviour that that when we do it it's transgressive and I think that that. once we've come out and we've gone we're out now we just we can enjoy the things that most straight people probably wish they could enjoy but they just can't because it's not masculine it's not manly I think you know okay so how does that work for a woman Mishti um, I don't know if I'd say I have like a political attachment to musicals. I just, 
I just think that they're fun. And I mean, <laughs> at school, I remember we used to have um, houses and I mean, we'd all be sorted into houses and we'd have um, like an inter-house drama festival every... Um, I think it was just like in the autumn. So we'd spend the whole term building up to it. And for me, I mean, my parents never really like, they weren't artsy people. Um, we didn't have really music in the house and we you know, theatre and stuff wasn't really an option. And so suddenly I was like, wow, I'm the main character. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, I, so the way I've always been, I'm three time Mary in the nativity in primary school. <laughs> so, oh, so, get you. <laughs> so it's still about self um, expression and self realization. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think it's just something fun to work on because there is it's quite a community effort. Mm. Um, everyone clubs together. You're all working on the set together. When you've gone through rehearsals and stuff with people and you, know, you have to make all the harmonies and things work, it's just so fun. Well, actually, funnily enough, on that front, the idea of a community coming together very quickly because we need to finish. Um, musical theatre, the industry, has been battered by the pandemic. What do you think, Dan? Is it going to recover? I don't know. It's been a tough time. You know, um, the West End has really, really struggled, obviously, with, with, with being closed for such a long time. But also, you know, we, we don't have so many tourists. You know, a lot of big musical shows are uh, really reliant on tourists. And they're expensive musicals. You know, that you have to have a lot of cast. You have a lot of people on stage in order to make it kind of fabulous enough. And, and, and obviously the musicians, you know, everyone involved in a musical is... is, is uh, you know, is pulling together to try and put on a big show, and they're expensive, and so we need theatres to be full in order for, for basically to to break even, virtually. And so, yeah, for us to be struggling through, you know, I think we're going to have to be a little bit more careful and clever about how we do it going forward until we can get back up to full capacity and back, you know, to to, to tourists coming through London and people travelling to London specifically for for theatre. Okay, times. everybody listening, if you like musical theatre, you've got to go and watch it. Basically, that's the message, isn't it? 100% show up. Come yes. along. It's great fun. And you know what? They're very safe spaces. If, you, if you're worried about COVID, the theatre is one of the places much safer than going to a pub where people are shouting. You, you know, everyone sits in one direction. And, and what I love about theatres is they're very organised. You know, everyone knows that you can't even get your phone out without an usher telling you off. You know, people, they wear their masks. They sit. They face all in the same direction. They bring your drinks to your seats nowadays. It's, 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 it is a very safe place to come. So come and see it. It's fun. Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much. That is about it for this week. Thanks very much to both of my guests, Dan Gillespie-Sells and Mishti Ali, and also on the line, Ruth Kokerbergs and Carl Austin-Bean. I'll be back with a brand new panel and some brand new discussions at the same time next week for our final show. Drop me a line if you've enjoyed today's show, if you want to share an experience or want to have your say. If you're looking for us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK and I'm on at Matt Cam Writer. Or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. If you're a fan of The Feeling, they'll be on the Chris Evans Breakfast Show next Friday, the 12th of September. And we'll see you at the same time next Sunday.